We can grab a seat. But imagine if marriage didn't exist, and you're a guy, and you ask a woman to get married. Imagine what that conversation would be like. You'd be like, uh, hey, so, um, you know, we've been hanging out together all the time, spending a lot of time together and everything. Yeah, yeah, I know. I want to keep doing that till you're dead. <laughs> what? I want to keep hanging out with you till one of us dies. <laughs> Put this ring on your finger so people know we have an arrangement. <laughs> Who's that guy? It's a priest. <laughs> I want you to swear to God you won't back out of this deal. What's he wheeling in? It's a cake with two tiny dolls that look like us. <laughs> Eat a slice. <laughs> now beat a little bit to me. <laughs> this is really strange. Why are we doing this? Tax purposes. Yeah, marriage is weird, right? Marriage is a strange concept. Uh, many times, if we really stop and think about it, marriage almost feels like a foreign concept. And I'm telling you right now, I'll, I'll kind of pull back the curtain. The reality is that it is, right? It feels like a foreign concept because it is one. Because humanity didn't just stumble into marriage and think, oh, this is a good thing. Like, we were given marriage by God. God created marriage, of being outside of this world, outside of our time and space. He's the one that designed marriage and created marriage and gave it to us as a gift. He gave it to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. And he told them, look, this is what you're meant to be as. This is why you're meant to exist. This is the relationship I want you to strive for. I want you to both pull away from your mother and your father. I want you to cling to one another. I want you to become one flesh, a new family in and of yourselves. That's what we see in Genesis 2, where marriage in and of itself is this beautiful uh, unity that is created, given to a man and a woman, that they would be united because they need that, right? Because they need that reconciliation. But the truth is that we look out at our culture right now, and we don't see that in our marriages. The truth is we look out at marriages and we see them falling apart all the time. We see them not permanent at all. We see them falling apart because of infidelity or or financial problems or just disagreements or uh, abuse. We look out at marriages and they just, they end. They're no longer permanent. We look out at couples who decide that marriages aren't necessary. They decide, no, we can be committed to each other and kind of have an arrangement and live together and do this kind of stuff. We don't need marriage to know that we're committed to one another, that we can be in a relationship together. And so suddenly we look out at our culture. We even look into Christian culture. We look at believers' marriages and we still see them break and end. And so we're left wondering why do we still chase after marriage, right? Why are over 95% of us still going to get married? Why are we still moving towards that relationship? Why get married? Why marriage? All semester, we've been talking about relationships, right? All semester, we've been walking through the Song of Songs in an attempt to understand what is God's original design for relationships, specifically romantic relationships. How has God designed us and geared us to act towards one another in relationship? And what we've discovered is that relationships 
are just like songs in the sense that there is both a melody to a song and a message. There's always a bigger idea being communicated behind that song. And our relationships are the exact same way. There's a melody, there's an ebb and a flow, and there's, a, there's an appearance and a feel to our relationships. But there's always a message behind that melody. There's always some bigger idea or purpose that we point to with our relationships with one another. And so we've been trying to discover as believers, how do we pursue relationships that aren't just good or healthy or fun? How do we pursue relationships that are godly? Relationships that sing his song above all other things. How do we use the melody of our relationships to present the message, his message of his gospel. How do we do that? And so we've looked at every possible stage of a relationship that we've seen in the Song of Songs. We've seen uh, our attraction towards one another. How do we reflect the gospel in our attraction? How do we reflect the gospel in our pursuit of one another? How do we reflect the gospel as we deepen those relationships and move towards commitment? How do we reflect the gospel in the way that we treat sexuality? How do we reflect the gospel in the ways that we have conflict? Last week we said, how do we reflect the gospel in the way that we resolve that conflict, right? How do we find the gospel in the reconciliation that we seek with that other person? And we've been walking all semester. And let me tell you right now, this is the end. This is it. This is our last time in this book because we have reached the end of it. Chapter 8 is the final chapter in this book. And we are finding at the very end of all of it, the ultimate culmination of a relationship. We're finding marriage. And we're finding how do we reflect the gospel in our marriages. But man, the reality is that a lot of us are not that close to marriage, right? Some of us, it's not even on our radar. Others of us, we're like, I'm 18, right? Like we don't, we're not quite at that point and we want to like go out and do other things. And that's great. And that's awesome. Uh, and, but maybe some of those other topics kind of perked your interest. Maybe you're thinking like, oh, but I could talk about this or, or maybe my boyfriend could really listen to this one or the, my cousin could really listen to that one. I would encourage you, if there's anything along this series that you have any questions about, uh, the easiest way to access all the, our older stuff is through our app, right? The app that you can download on the beach because that's where all apps our best enjoyed. And so go out to the, go out to the beach, find our bulletin. Uh, it's the best way to find out about the events we have, sign up for our small groups, and to listen to those old sermons, to access that information. So again, if there's anything along this path that you missed out on, that you're interested in, please, please, please uh, know that we've put it out there for you, right? It's an available resource for you guys. But like I said, this evening, we're at the end. This evening, we're at the final chapter the final stage of this relationship, and we're looking at the very end of the book and we're seeing how do we reflect the gospel in our marriages, in our commitments to one another. And thankfully, chapter 8, where we'll be all night, if you have a Bible, if you want to grab one, uh, chapter 8 starts off with one more just solid, confusing illustration. The woman is speaking to the man. She says, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. What is she saying? Why? That's weird. Right? This is, you know, we could get it behind like the dove and fox and barnyard thing. But brother, like, come on. You are trying us, Song of Songs. Like, this is really strange, right? When none of us have really reached that point in our dating relationship where we turn or look across the table and say, oh, if only you were my sister, right? Like that's, I don't know, like what, what is this? 
what does this mean? Uh, she's speaking to the man, the best as we can figure, the best as biblical scholars have been able to figure is that, you know, there's, uh, there was certain uh, stipulations, certain like taboos uh, when it came to PDA back in the day, right? Today you can go to like Walmart and you're on like the pencil aisle and there's a couple like, like just going crazy. And that, you know, that happens in our day and age. But back then, man, that was very frowned upon. Like if you were any PDA, they'd like, you know, hit you with a camel or something. I don't know what they did, but they did something. And they were very, they frowned upon PDA unless, unless it was your immediate family, right? So she's basically saying, look, we're married, right? We're going to find out a couple verses. They're definitely married. Uh, But she's saying, I I wish, I wish that we were immediate family because for some reason, again, in their culture, uh, if you're out with your husband or with your spouse, like, watch it, you know, but brother, like, ah, eh, whatever, you know, and it's, just, it's strange, but she says, I wish that we were immediate family. I wish that I could show you affection in this public place, All right? So they're in some sort of public arena. She says, I wish that I could show affection to you. I wish I could kiss you. I wish I could hug you. I wish I could lavish my affections upon you as if you were my immediate family. And so again, they're in a public place. And so she says, and you know what, man, I wish that I could lead you out of this place, out of this public arena. I wish I could bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me, I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. Right? What have we been seeing referred to as the pomegranate the entire book? Her mouth, her, her cheeks. She's saying, I wish that I could take you back home and, you know, watch a movie. Right? That's what she's saying. She's saying, this is what I want to do with you right now. It's too bad that we're out in the marketplace. But, says, and, but you know, and if we were in that environment, she describes that your left hand, his left hand would be under my head. His right hand would be embracing me. It's an intimate moment. And right in the end of it, right, right as she's describing this beautiful, delightful, passionate moment, she says, but I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Yet again, she gives this challenge, this push, this warning to the course, the, the background people that we've seen all books. She says, yet again, I do not want you to stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Which at this point should be driving us a little nuts. Because we've been looking all book and we've been seeing the beauty of love. We've been seeing the amazing things contained within their relationship. And the way that they were you know, affectionate, the way that they were drawn to one another, the way they pursued one another, the way they fought and reconciled with one another. It's an amazing thing. We all love pomegranate juice, right? Like we want to have that. So why is she telling us to not stir up or awaken love until please? Why does she keep pushing it? Because she says it over and over and over again, but she never really explains it. Until now. That's what I love about this book is that the way it's laid out, whether it's one couple talking the whole time or just a collection of a bunch of different couples, what we're seeing is this one warning, this one thematic poetic line repeated over and over and over again. Finally, here at the very end, it's explained. Its reasoning is given to us. And we understand why we should be doing it. Why should we not stir it up? Why should we not awaken it? When is it truly ready? She finally explains to us just a couple verse later, this is when it's ready. She says, you should set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. She says, I, I want you to commit yourself to me. She says, when is love ready? When is it ready to be awoken and stirred? This moment. When you set me as a seal upon your heart, when you set me as a seal upon your arm, something he's probably already done. In other words, she's saying, I I want you to give yourself over to me. 
When she's talking about that seal, right, it's talking about, you know, the, but the other like seal, like the, the, you use it on parchments. Uh, you would have like a document or a scroll or a tablet and you would have either a stamp or a rolling seal. Right? The same way that in medieval times, you know, you think of the king who's got the ring and it's like King Jimmy or whatever. And so he gets the seal and he like puts the wax on it and stamps it. That way you know it's from King Jimmy and you open it up and you're like, oh. The horses or whatever, you know, so you know this. And so you would know, okay, but it's from Jimmy. She's, that's what she's describing. She says, I want to be that seal upon your heart. I want to be that stamp seal. Or another thing they had back then in the Mesopotamia area is they had these rollers, these little like almost like cylinders that you would roll across the wet clay that would leave an imprint. She says, that's what I want to be on your heart. That's what I want to be on your arm. In other words, that's what I want to be on your innermost being. I want to be a seal on what you think, on who you are deep down, on your motivations. But not only that, I want to be a seal on your arm. I want to be a seal on your outermost being, in the public eye, in your actions, in your words. I want you to know, and I want everyone to know that you've given yourself to me. She's describing marriage. She's describing Marriage, an inner and outer commitment to this other person. It's the same reason uh, we as Aggies, right? We like to talk about how we bleed maroon. You know, okay. And that's what we do, right? We say that and we say that all day, every day. And that's great, but that's an inner thing, right? So maybe we know we bleed maroon, even though it's still red. Okay, just don't test it, but trust me. But we say we bleed maroon, and yet we still, when we get towards the end, we still get that outer sign, right? We get that perfect ring. This one right here. Yeah. <laughs> this is what a history degree will get you, right? Still gets you there. Doesn't matter what degree it is, you still get one. And that's what we want, right? We're aiming for that 90-whatever hours so that we can get that ring, that outer sign, that outer seal. You literally have Texas A&M seal on you where you're saying, I've given myself over to Texas A&M University. And they own me forever. I have the calls from the Alumni Association to prove it, right? Like you prove to everyone, both inwardly and outwardly, I belong to this person. And she's describing marriage. She's looking at that other hand. She's saying, I want you to belong to me, not only in there, but I want you to belong to me out here. I want you to show everyone. I want you to proclaim to our family, to our friends. Today, we proclaim to our family. We proclaim to our friends. We also proclaim to our government. You get a license. You file it with the county. We proclaim it to our God. We get a priest to come in. So we swear to one another and in front of God, our commitment to one another. We declare in front of this giant public setting, our commitment to one another. The fact that we belong and are owned by that other person. That's what we do. That's what a marriage is. And no other commitment comes close to that. No other commitment stacks up. I don't care how many times he sends you that text message that says, hey, baby, you know, my, you know you, my whole world. You know, like he can send that and that's great. But that same relationship can end in the very next text message. That relationship can end in an afternoon conversation. That relationship can end by just one of you not talking to the other person. Those relationships never stack up. It's not the same thing to talk to one another and say, yeah, yeah, we're totally committed. That's not the same as marriage. You can't play that game. You can't convince yourselves, oh, no, this is the same. We're married in God's eyes as long as we just, you know, say verbally or whatever. That doesn't work. In our current culture, 
If you want to be married, you proclaim it to your family, to your friends, to your government, to your God. That's what marriage is. And that's what she's describing. It's not enough to just have that conversation in the car and say, oh, no, we're totally committed. So now we can suddenly X, Y, Z, whatever it is. It's not the same. You know it. You know it. It's not the same. She says, I want you to belong to me. I want to have this commitment. Why? What's so great about this love that we're now able to stir and awaken? Right? What do we see now that they've made this commitment, now that they are in this marriage? What is suddenly unlocked in their relationship? She says, love is strong as death. She says, it's jealousy is fierce as the grave. She's saying this love that we have, love in general, it is permanent and it is possessive. As death, right? Death, there's no coming back from that. It's as strong as it's as permanent as death. It's as jealous as the grave. The grave does not let you go once you go into it. She says that's what this love is. And so she's warning them not to stir or awaken it, not to rush love. Why? Because outside of a committed relationship, outside of marriage, permanent jealousy is just creepy, right? It's just weird. When you look across time and space, you find one particular man named David Lab. And this man has done something admirable. He lives in Augusta, Maine. And he wanted to sell his house and the lot next to his house to the corporation Dunkin' Donuts. And he wanted to sell them to Dunkin' Donuts because they wanted to build a store. And so he's like, you know, this is great. This is what America runs on. I will support, I will support this decision for the good of my community, I will sell, right, for this hefty sum, I will sell my property to Dunkin' Donuts. And yet his neighbors were like, we do not need one of those in our neighborhood. And so they filed a complaint with the city. City stepped in. They said, no, this goes against the zoning. They kind of worked some stuff up, blocked the sale. And so David Lab, the hero that he is, decided, well, the only answer to this problem is to fill my yard with toilets. <laughs> so he put out a sign asking for 60 to 70 toilets because that's just the right amount, I guess. Uh, but he says, I want all these toilets. I'm going to fill my yard. He had this corner lot. He says, I'm going to fill it with toilets because I'm, my goal is to make everyone hate me so much that they'll just give in to my demands. Why? Because he is just so permanently fixated on his goal of selling himself to Dunkin' Donuts, right? Or at least his property. Maybe himself too. I don't know. But he's trying to give all that he has to Dunkin' Donuts. Right? And when we see this, we're like, that is so misguided. Right? Like, what are you doing? That's strange. The flowers are a nice touch, but it's still a little strange. Right? When we see this, we're like, there's something wrong about that jealousy, about that permanent jealousy. And we see that in relationships. I mean, we look out. If you see that one person that's just, per- just jealous and, and crazy and possessive outside of a marriage, you're like, that doesn't make sense. Like, you're not one. Like, you've been dating at three days. Like, why... Why does she delete all the other girls from your phone? Like, that's just weird. So we see this and we know, man, there's something off. But yet, and when we see it in marriage, when we see it in that permanent commitment, it's beautiful. And that permanent jealousy creates incredible security and confidence within that committed relationship. One pastor described it as 
when I'm married, I, I'm now attached to this other person where I become one flesh. And so if I'm, uh, you know, I'm playing sports or whatever, I go outside, I try to throw the baseball and my arm just kind of like, like kind of goes off or I don't know, I injure it somehow. I don't then decide like, oh, dang it. And cut my arm off. Right? That's not my first reaction. When I sprain it or like stub my finger, I'm like, oh man, right? That's not what I do. Why? Because it's my arm, because it's a part of me. And so I work on it, right? I go to the doctor, I try to get it set or work it out or, you know, go to physical therapy. That's what I do because it's a part of me. When you're married, that permanence, that jealousy means that you belong to one another. And it's incredible because now you know that no matter what happens today, they're going to be there tomorrow. That's beautiful. And suddenly you can have conflict in the right way. You can have resolution in the right way. You can pursue another in the right way. Because there is security in that permanence. It's a good thing. Only within that relationship. So we don't rush it, we wait. But she says it's not just permanent. She says that also it's flashes. Love's flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. She's saying love isn't just a permanent thing. She's saying it's also incredibly powerful. Like fire. It's powerful as a flame. And man, We've seen in our lives, I mean, misguided passion. If we rush this and we bring uh, this, this passion, this fire outside of a committed relationship, it's so powerful that it can burn us. I mean, some of us have been burnt. Some of us have scars to prove it. Emotional, physical. When that passion is misguided, misguided passion rushed Awakened early passion, man, it's, it's bad. It leads you to, to a dark place like Gloria Comstock, who told Lone Star Steakhouse on their Facebook page, it's always too hard to print the coupons in the email. It leads you to a place like Carlos Batala commenting on our local Golden Corral, who said, kids like to eat there, but last couple times very dirty and stinky, won't go back for a minute. <laughs> You wind up like Michelle Rhodes. You told Panera, hey, honey, it's that word. Are you tonight? <laughs> or maybe, just maybe, you're Ronald talking to Old Country Buffet and you say Cracker Barrel. <laughs> just, just Cracker Barrel. Misguided passion, right? These people are passionate about something, right? Uh, passionate about finding out what their daughter's doing, about stinky or about... Cracker Barrel, I guess. I don't know. They're passionate about something, but yet there seems to be a misdirection, right? There seems to be a context that's missing. They don't seem to be finding the right channel. When that happens, man, you're in a, you're in a bad place. We've seen this. We've experienced this. We've maybe even done this. Where that passion is awoken. We're like, oh my gosh, this is so great. And we give all of our energy, all of our time, all of our, all of our resources into this relationship. Because like, this is going to be it. I'm so passionate. It's so great. And it just ends. And when it ends, we get burned. When we've connected ourselves so tightly to that other person. And suddenly they're just gone. Man, so you get scars. You wind up on the old country buffet. <laughs> Facebook. Shouting out Cracker Barrel. And you don't want to be there. Instead, we wait. We find that marriage commitment. And in that moment, suddenly that passion is so beautiful. That 
power is so great because it creates an impression. It doesn't leave you burned. It leaves you changed for the better. It gives you an impression. When you find that magical, committed place, like the Red Lobster Cheddar Bay Biscuits page, where people like Brent Edwards say, this, them biscuits with the cheese up in them. (laughs) I spent way too much time on the Red Lobster Cheddar Bay Biscuits page. And let me tell you, there are people committed to that fan page. (laughs) Committed. People like Brent have posted so many times. I cannot even begin to explain to you the conversa- the full conversations about like life and philosophy uh, and Michael Jackson's death that are on this Cheddar Bay Biscuits page. It's the strangest thing. You have people like Steve who say, so good. I used to love KFC Popeye Biscuits best, even just for a snack or bring a few home. But for years, our definitely Red Lobster Cheddar Bay Butter Biscuits, adios, dot one. <laughs> Again, another man posts so many times on this page. Men like Kobe who love it so much, they come with big questions like, hey, just wondering what the official Red Lobster policy on Israel is. (laughs) Just want to know. You suddenly can see this passion, man. When that passion takes place in the right context, suddenly it's beautiful, right? We find that our love, that power that's in it, our love is made complete, honestly, in commitment. Our love cannot be complete without commitment. Outside of that love, or outside of that commitment, man, our love, it's misguided. It's going all over the place. And so it ends or it burns us. In fact, the woman keeps going. She says, it's also unquenchable. She says, many waters cannot quench love. She says, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. She says, love can't be quenched. It's this all-consuming, overwhelming need. It says you can't fill it with why You can't fill it with resources, right? That's what she's saying. So you can't throw money at it or resources. You can't just fix love or make it work or get it right just with time or money, whatever it is. You can't do it. It's unquenchable. And outside of a commitment, outside of a marriage, that unquenchableness is terrible. Some of us have been in that relationship where we did not have good balance and we were just consumed by it. And it's too much. And you're drowning in that overwhelming neediness. Outside of that commitment, man, this this thing can destroy you, can own you, can chew you up and spit you out. Because there's just something about that love that just can't quite be filled. Kind of like this guy. And you know what? That's endearing. But the truth is, none of us are quite as cute as that puppy, right? Like we just can't, we can't quite pull that off. The reality is that whenever we see that overwhelming need to this outside of a marriage, when you see just in a normal passing relationship, man, it's, oh, it's too much. It's just, it's too much. But yet if we're in that commitment, if we're in that marriage, if we've waited to awaken love in its time when we've been sealed, suddenly that unquenchable nature of love is exciting because that means there's always adventure. That means there's always change. 
means you always want that person with you at all times. And it's great because the reality is that you will walk through life and you will walk through circumstances where you need someone. You need that companionship. You need that fellowship. Some people, right, some people don't ever get married and they have close friends, right? This isn't impossible outside of marriage, but I'm telling you, for the 95% of us that get married, your spouse is that companionship. Susan and I got married about five years ago. I'll tell you, we've walked through so much of life and it's been so wonderful and enriching and beautiful and, and straight from the Lord God in heaven to have her by my side as we're at a funeral dealing with loss and death of a close one. And it's just as beautiful and meaningful and amazing to have her by my side at a childbirth class yesterday because we're having a baby in a couple weeks. I know, yeah. <laughs> and that's such a beautiful thing, but partially because if I went to that childbirth class by myself, like, what's going on? Well, that'd be weird. <laughs> but more so than that, it's just another stage of life, man. It's another adventure that we get to go on together. And that unquenchable nature of love is something that's to be cherished. But the reality is that Many times, I mean, the biggest problem we run into with our commitments, many times the one thing that really derails us, whether we're believers or not believers, the thing that really gets us and throws a wrench into these plans is when there's too much change and when there's too much uh, different about the person or about our circumstances. And suddenly we find ourselves in that moment where he starts acting in a certain way that we never saw him act before. And we're asking ourselves like, what, what do I do with this? Or, right, or she won't support me in this thing that I really think is best for our family. Or, or suddenly we're not connecting in ways that we used to a year ago or three years ago or 10 years ago. Suddenly it feels like I'm with this person that I don't even recognize. Suddenly it seems like this person is not the one that I married. And so when we reach that moment, we decide, you know what? This commitment is null and void. I committed myself to that person six years ago. You are not that person. And so we end it or we walk away. And let me tell you right now, that is the darkest lie you will ever buy into. I've seen it and it's terrible. Do not go down that path because ultimately my commitment in this relationship is not just to my spouse. Ultimately, ultimately my commitment is to my God. I swear to my God, I make a commitment to my God to love and respect and serve and sacrifice for this other person. And my God never changes. My God never fails. My God never does anything to nullify that commitment, ever. So when we walk through this relationship, as we make this commitment, we've got to realize it is not a, a contract where I give and, and you give and I give to get this or if this, then that. That's not how it works our marriages are covenants. In other words, I walk up to my spouse, I walked up to Susan on January 9th, 2010, and I said, this is what I'm gonna give you. Basically, all that I am, all that I have, I'm gonna give it to you. And that's it. That's the commitment. It doesn't matter what she says back to me. 
That's the covenant that I've made with her. That commitment is not based on our actions. Our commitment is based on the actions of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul told us in Ephesians 5 that we've quoted multiple times this semester. That this is the reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2 where God created marriage, gave it to Adam and Eve as a gift. Paul says this mystery is so profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's saying this is a covenant that has been made between the two of you in the same way that Christ stepped out of heaven onto earth to live and die and rise again for the sake of broken, disgusting enemies of God. And he didn't care what they said. He didn't care what they did. While they were still enemies, he died for them. He gave everything. He sacrificed his life, which the scripture tells us is the greatest love. There's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. Jesus Christ laid down his life for every enemy of God. And in light of that, I know that that's how I'm supposed to act towards my spouse. That's the mystery of marriage, that it reflects Christ in the church. Ben Stewart says, sums it up great when he says, you get to leave your wife, you get to leave your spouse when Christ abandons his church. And that's never going to happen. Jesus Christ himself promised us that his sheep hear his voice and I know them and they follow me and I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. He says, the father and I are one. He says, no one's going to take them out of my hand. Once you are my sheep, once you belong to me, that's it. You've been adopted as a son or a daughter of the Lord most high. And that relationship, that standing will never change. That commitment that he makes to you will never go away. It doesn't matter what you say, what you do. If you ever had that moment where you stopped and realized the extent of the sin in your life, in our world, realized that that sin could not be solved by good works or belief in some other God, if you realized that that sin could only be solved, that problem, that death could only be solved by placing your trust and faith in who Jesus Christ is, what he has done. If you've had that moment, you're one of his and you have eternal life and there's no condemnation for you. That's how our marriages should work. We commit ourselves to this other person no matter what they say, no matter what they do. Are there sometimes biblical grounds for walking away from that relationship, having some separation, perhaps. But 99% of the time, it's till death. Our God tells us that he loves to restore what's broken. He loves to move into that moment and bring two sinners together so that they could pursue him even better than they could alone. But what do we do in the meantime? I mean, how, how do we move towards that moment? Because again, some of us were years out. Some of us, honestly, maybe we're only a couple months away. How do we move towards that moment? I'll tell you right now, you need to be focusing on your walk as a single person. 
whether you're dating someone or not, right? You're not married. As a non-married individual, you should be focusing on your single maturity before you worry about your married status. Why? Because godly singles make godly spouses. There's not just suddenly this alternate universe that comes into place. There's not suddenly this amazing change that happens when you get married. Don't convince yourself that, oh, no, he'll like, he'll totally wake up to this part if, once we get engaged. Or, oh, no, she'll totally be on board with my future plans if we just, you know, get married. Don't, don't buy into that lie. If this person is not following the God that you're following, you do not even need to think about committing yourself to them. Paul says that that means you are going to be unequally yoked. And that means that you are going to be in for a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. So don't do it. Instead, you focus, man, how am I going to walk in a godly way as a non-married individual? How am I going to be attracted to a person's name and who they are and what they've done? How do I pursue that person in a way that is positive, that's protective, that has a purpose? How am I going to pick that person, right? When I eventually discover there's that one person that I'm willing to hunt, hunt foxes with, how am I going to do that? How are we going to walk through those waters, navigate that environment? How are we going to move towards one another despite those problems? Because we both realize that God uses broken people for his purposes. How do we eventually reach that point where we can use sex in a way that brings unity, in a way that is reserved for marriage, a high view of sex? How do I move towards this person despite the conflict that we have with one another? How do I not just react to them in the moment? How do I respond to my God in the midst of that conflict? How do I seek reconciliation at the end of that conflict? And what's most important for you right now is to realize that you're going to fail at one of those things. All semester we've been talking about how to reflect God, how to reflect the gospel in our relationships. And I'll tell you right now, it's not by following every week's application point. It's not by being perfect. We do not reflect the gospel in our relationships by being perfect because that's impossible. Instead, we reflect the gospel in our relationships by making them permanent. When we get married, we commit ourselves and when we fail in that commitment, when I fail to serve Susan in the best way possible, when I, when I fail at being a great husband or I fail at being a great father, when I fail at those different things, I remember that my love for her is completed only in our commitment. That our love does not depend on perfection. It depends on our permanence. That my love is completed in that commitment and that God's love for both of us is more complete than either of us could ever imagine. That God's love for us can't be taken away. When Paul tells us that he's sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Suddenly, in the midst of that relationship, I realize, you know what? Neither of us are going to be perfect. I can't make that happen. But what I can make happen is I can make this relationship permanent. Imagine If Christians got married in this way, imagine if Christians really took that commitment seriously. Imagine if all of us were walking into this room with the foreknowledge that Christians don't divorce. How would that change our world? If people saw 
Christians handling marriage differently, if people saw that commitment in marriage in a way that reflects the permanent commitment that Christ has made with this church. So as we sing a couple more songs, man, I, I would encourage you to be thinking about the commitments that you've made. It's probably not to a spouse at this point, but there are certain relationships that you're in it for the long run. Family members, maybe even a friend, a close friend. And the reality is that there are many times that we want to kind of pull away or, or deviate or, or pull back from that relationship, but how do we move towards them? How do we show them the love that Christ has shown us? How do we prepare ourselves as single, non-married individuals for that moment when we are committed, when we are married? How do we work on not becoming perfect, but how do we work on bringing a permanence to that commitment? Let's pray. God, we, we thank you that you loved us first. That, God, we are only able to love and commit ourselves to one another because you did it before us. God, we pray that your spirit would empower us to truly commit ourselves to that spouse one day down the road. But God, that your spirit would empower us to not neglect the parent that we do not want to hang out with over the break. God, the sibling that we're currently in a fight with. God, we pray that you would show us, pour out your love and your grace and your forgiveness on us, that we would experience it to the point where it just spills out into those other relationships. God, show us how do we walk towards that marriage, that one day relationship, that one day commitment. If you would take a moment, ask the Lord to maybe show where in your life have you just gone back on a relationship, on a commitment that you made. Ask the Lord to show you, man, where do you have a tendency to just pull back or takes it for granted? Ask him to show you that right now. If you would, take a moment, ask the Lord to show you, man, how can you move towards that person? How can you bring the love of Christ? How can you reflect the gospel in that relationship? And ask him as well, how can you better be preparing for that marriage that is more likely the not coming into your life one day. Ask the Lord to show you where can you be walking more faithfully as a non-married individual. Ask him to show you where can you be preparing for that commitment, that permanent unity that's somewhere down the road.